Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mastering engineer Michael Romanowski. First of all, the major labels, actually most labels, have a dilemma, and it's about their back catalog. Now, catalog basically means any song, any release, any album that's more than 18 months old. If it's newer than that, it's considered a new release. For the longest time, labels have relied on their back catalog for their profits. And if we go back to 2004, 36% of their revenue came from back catalog. So it was really important to how much money the labels were making. That's all changed. The reason why is 73% of all streams are from the years 2010 to 2018. 73% of all streams are only from those eight years. This is across all streaming networks. It's not just one. Now, it's even worse because if you look back from 2000 to 2018, that represents 88% of all the streams that people are listening to. So in other words, the last 18 years, 19 years really, is what most people, the vast majority of people, are listening to, 88%. Songs before 1990 account for only 4% of streams. So as you can see, we're in a new music era where at least most people, it might not be you or I, but most listeners, most consumers, especially young consumers, they're only listening to what's pretty much brand new. And what that means is we have millions and millions of songs available to us on just about every streaming network and not many people listening to them. So what the major labels did back in the CD era and even before that in the vinyl era, they used box sets and remastered releases and anniversary packages for their back catalog. And these were big profit makers. Why? Well, because it didn't cost them all that much to manufacture. There was not that much in marketing cost, and there was certainly not that much in creation cost. You don't have to pay for production. So these were big money makers. And you know what? They still do it today, but it doesn't matter. There's not many people that are buying them. So what do they do? They're trying to rely more and more on playlists. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you get one song by one artist in a playlist, it helps. But really, what they're trying to do is get two or three artists from their catalog, or two or three songs on a particular playlist. And that kind of boosts everything, and it gets people more interested in listening to the back catalog of an artist. Then, what they've done, I think this is kind of brilliant, they're making videos for songs that originally didn't have any. So we're talking pre-1980, where most songs that were released, except for the very, very biggest, didn't have a video attached to them. So they're remaking videos just for those songs. And then finally, what they're doing is they're taking control of an artist. And again, we're talking artists pre-1990. They're taking control of their websites, if they can, and their social media and posting for them, and being more active on social media to try to boost the awareness for these artists. So as we hear more and more older songs are being used in commercials, being used on TV shows, being used in movies every day, and that helps the back catalog a little bit, but it doesn't help it enough. 
So major labels are all scratching their heads. What can we do with all this music that nobody wants? If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, check out my free ebook and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinskicourses.com forward slash free hyphen resources. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, the AES show just finished up in New York. I didn't go, but I have lots of spies on the ground there, and they were telling me about some new things that came out. Tons and tons of new audio products. I'm only going to go over the ones I thought were kind of interesting. The first one is the Roswell Pro Audio Mini K87. So this is a very small version of a microphone they came out with a couple years ago. It's cardioid only, and it's supposed to be neutral sounding. So instead of sounding like a particular microphone, especially an old one, vintage one, this is supposed to sound fairly neutral. And that's a new approach. It's only $399. So that's a great price for a condenser microphone. Universal Audio was not at AES. That being said, there were some rumors, and from what I understand, there were some new products that went up on a website somewhere that showed a brand new Apollo X4, and this has four microphone inputs. So that's kind of interesting. Also, it looks like the Apollo series in general will all now be connected via Thunderbolt 3. So now I think there's an Apollo for every flavor of computer port that you might have. Here's something else I thought was really interesting. It's by a company called Louder Than Liftoff. It's the Chroma Plus. Now this is a stereo or dual mono preamp. But it also has some very interesting wide EQ that has dual character. And you can get either A or N. A for American and N for British or Neve. They can't say Neve but that's really what it is. And then it has this other thing where you can cascade channels so you can get both EQs from each channel to work as one. But I think the big thing about this is it's not only an interesting mono stereo preamp, it's also something that you can use when you're mixing. Put your mix through it because it has, again, lots of character. So this is $14.99, probably something worth looking at. Now, microphones, United Studio Technologies came out with the UT47 FET. For all of you Neumann U47 FET lovers out there, we've been looking for an alternative for a long time, and finally there's a few coming out. This, I think, is the cheapest. It's $7.99. What makes it a little different from everything else, it's made in the USA. API came out with its 50th anniversary 862 channel strip and 2500 bus compressor. And these are in the famous old yellow gold coloring. So this goes really way back, 50 years. The channel strip is 3,600 and the compressor is 4,500. But the thing is, they're only making 50 of each. I thought this was really, really interesting. 
and I think it was on a recent New Music Gear Monday blog post that I did. It's the Apogee Clear Mountain's Domain. It's an effects plugin that Bob Clear Mountain uses. Actually, he's duplicated his signal chain in the digital domain. And what he said is he couldn't get it from any other plugins, no matter what combination he used. So he decided to come up with his own. And what this basically is, is delay and convolution reverb. And there's a number of convolution reverbs involved here. And you can mix and match. You can color them. You can EQ them. You can DS them. All those things. Oh, harmonize them as well. All the things that Bob does. Plus, he has these great presets that are based on all the famous songs and albums that Bob has done, like the Stones, Brian Adams, just off the top of my head. It's 349. A lot for a plugin, but you know what? You get, I think, three convolution reverbs, so it's actually not that expensive. This is interesting. The Bayer DT770 headphones are a favorite of (laughs) just about everybody because they're comfortable and they sound good. They're about $150, and I think you can get them for $139 on Amazon, but Behringer came out with the clone that they call the DT770s. They're only $35. (laughs) Don't know what they sound like, but they sure look the same. Might be worth checking out for the money. And finally, Tannoy monitors. I loved and used Tannoys for years and years, and the Tannoy goals is something that everyone tries to find because they're like hen's teeth, but some of the best-sounding monitors ever. Well, Tannoy has come out with a new version of the Gold Monitor Series. Again, they're dual concentric. In this case, they're bi-amped. There's three different ones. There's an 8-inch, a 6.5-inch, and a (laughs) 5-inch. The thing is, they're really cheap. It's $385 each retail for the Gold 8, $315 each retail for the Gold 7, and $250 each for the Gold 5. So I don't know what you can expect from monitors that are that inexpensive, to be honest with you, but the Tannoy Gold Monitor is something that we always wanted. Anyway, there's plenty more products that have come out. I'll report on them as I find them, but these are some that might be worth taking a look at. My guest today is Michael Romanowski, who's a Grammy-nominated mastering engineer and is also the owner and chief mastering engineer at San Francisco's Coast Mastering. He's also the co-owner and founder of the analog tape label, The Tape Project, and he's a trustee of the Recording Academy San Francisco chapter. Michael has also worked the long list of clients that includes America, Third Eye Blind, G-Love, Trained, Pentatonix, among many, many others. He's also become one of the first mastering engineers to work in the immersive audio world with projects for Media Hyperium Sound and Kenny Wayne Shepherd. During the interview, we spoke about making the transition from engineering to mastering, the difference between polishing a mix and real mastering, the quest for dynamic range, working in immersive audio, and much more. I spoke with Michael via Skype from his studio in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tell me how you got in the business. Well, I started in the music business. I started as a, as many people do, as a player. Got it. I was in. I was playing music. I was in bands, um, uh, which led to my engineering. I I, uh, I grew up in Nashville, and so I cut my teeth, you know, in Nashville scene many many years ago. Um, uh, certainly before what it is right now. But I uh, uh, I I went to college. I actually I was playing other instruments when I was in high school, and I was in the marching band. I played trombone. Uh, played clarinet for a few years before that, and then I played violin. It was the first instrument I ever played, and 
uh, you know, got got into it as a as a player side when I went to college, and this was in Bowling Green, Kentucky, about an hour and twenty or minutes or so north of uh, north of Nashville. It was on the main drag, where anybody that was playing Nashville coming to was heading through this town and played at this club, and it was the it was the one real club in town. It was called Picasso's, and uh, as I was uh, uh, I was I moved from trombone to bass and was a bass player and and got into uh, got into playing in bands and. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, my bandmate at the time, the, and still one of my best friends, is Mike Grimes. Owns a record store in Nashville called Grimey's. Um, uh, we uh, we started playing at this club, and I and I remember the first time I walked in, and there was somebody sitting in the back with this, you know, console and this thing, and I was like, "What is this? And who is that? And what are they doing? Like, this is like, I don't. What is that? Like, and they were, t- and I was like, "You mean?" They are responsible for how we sound. We are not necessarily so responsible. They have something to do with it. And immediately I went, all right, I got to find out what this is. And I, I went over and, and to make a long story short, I started talking to the, the house sound man and then kind of got a vibe for, you know, what he was doing and what was happening. And, and um, I kept bugging him and I'd go on there nights. I was, I was just, that was a place to go hang. And so I would just go down and I'd go, you know, almost every night and hang out down there. And I would say, Hey, what are you doing? And what's this? And what's that? He, uh, you know, as time grew on, he finally said, you know, I'm going to take a little break. You run it for a little bit. And then, you know, hey, I'm going to take the night off. You run it for a little bit. And then finally, I quit. You're new. To, you're now the new house sound man. I'm like, uh, OK, cool. And it was uh, it was it was really good. It was a good experience. As I was in bands doing that, um, uh, 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 as I was doing that, I was also playing in bands that started getting into recording. And I was realizing there was a very there was a similarity in the recording versus the live, at least as far as, you know, console and some of the, some of the, you know, um, maybe the mindset things go. And so it really fascinated me. And I just, I got really into engineering through the manipulation of sound and understanding how to balance and what to put together. You know, it's still one of the things that I would say is one of my, one of my, uh, I would say milestones of ear training was being a live sound engineer of having to make a decision on the spot I think this sounds like this, and I think this needs to sound like that. How do I get from here to here? And I think that got me, uh, you know, that still serves me well in the mastering world. Well, speaking of which, it's a step going from engineering recording to mastering. It's not one that people can take lightly. So how did that happen for you? Because, uh, you know, again, that's something that has to be a very conscious decision to go from one to the other. It, you know what it, it was it was a uh, it was a, um, a a culmination of an aha moment right place at the right time and then a comprehension of this is what this really is by the way I, you sent an article Bob Hodis sent me something you wrote about mastering recently uh, yeah. about the demise of well done and I I'm with you and I you know it's a this is a good topic to talk about because I take mastering very seriously. I think it's an art form unto itself, and it's not something the mix engineer could or should be doing with this, to me, with the same mindset that a talented mastering engineer brings to the table of all of the things that they bring. This is relating to your question and that for me, because it's also, I went to college for math and computer science. While I was playing, I was a double major on, you know, on uh, on the technical, on the math side of things. Um, the long story short was I was, I was working and I was in Nashville and doing stuff and I needed a break and I decided 
I decided I head on my motor, get on my motorcycle and take a month and ride around the country and visit friends and make a big loop all the way around, go out to the West Coast and come back and uh, visiting friends along the way. And I arrived in San Francisco after about half the trip. I, I arrived in the Bay Area and called back to check my messages, you know, on that little tape. Remember those little? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, so I just I called back and I was checking my messages and there the the uh, the owners of mastering facility here called Rocket Lab called me and said, hey, we, we hear that you're thinking about relocating. We're looking for another engineer. Would you like to send us a resume? And I called up and I said, turns out I'm actually in town. I don't have a resume with me. I'm a motorcycle. I'm on my bike, but I'd be happy to talk to you. Would you be, you know? And so I came down and I talked to him and I ended up spending an extra three days or so here. And they showed me around and showed me what the Bay Area was like and, and all of that kind of got a little handle on the history. But more so, I got to sit in the mastering room there. Uh, you know, I, I was, I guess, like everybody else. This was the early 90s. I guess I was like everybody else. That just as an engineer, you say, here, master my stuff. It comes back. You go there. Like you didn't really, you knew it had to be done, but you didn't necessarily know what it was or what it was about. I, I was certainly in that camp until I sat down in that room with Paul Stubblevine. And uh, we uh, he sat there and uh, talked about stuff and showed me things. And we were... We're, it was just getting into like the first workstations were really coming into the mastering world. I mean, we were still using 1630s and, you know, there were still some F1s that had to be done and, you know, still dealing with some of the very early stuff as well as the, you know, the tape machines, which I knew a little bit about and, and uh, you know, and, and certainly cutting lacquers and stuff like that. But um, when I realized kind of what the connection was between what the, the mastering was that bridge between the art and the science of making records the big picture thinking about how does the music present itself? Not necessarily what is it, but how is it? How do people listen to it? What's coming across to them? What's the you know, dynamics or EQ or levels or any of those kinds of things? How does this collection of songs become a body of work? And how does it feel like that? And on top of it, then there was the technical side of delivery, making sure that everything was clocked correctly, everything, the cabling was all correct, that the manufacturer had the master that they needed correctly that didn't have you know too many errors on the on the you know again the 1630 tape or you know cds were just becoming burnable at the time there was uh, or actually we were just before that but um uh uh that marriage of the art and the technology when i walked in i went i have this math computer science background and i have this art passion and this listening ability this is really right at the apex of my interests and it really piqued me. And I really thought, well, this is, th this is something I can do. I love. I want to do this. They offered me a job. I said, uh, give me a couple weeks to get back on my, on my bike. I get back to Nashville. I got back. Uh, I called them. And, and I think about a month later, I was here. And there it goes. I actually had planned to go back to Nashville. Denny Purcell was a family friend. And Danny, Denny had said, like, you know, hey, do you want to be, you know, uh, let's 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 talk about this at some point. And so I was planning on going back. I just expected to spend like two years here in the Bay Area. And uh, 25 years later, I'm still here, you know, doing my thing. <laughs> well, I, I have a question for you. So then you get into mastering. How long did it take you before you felt that you were good? That's a wow. That's an excellent question. Well, on an honest level, I'm still learning things every day. Because of how records get made and how they get cha how they change, how the production changes, how the sonics change, how the delivery change, how the consumers listen to them have changed. So I'm still learning. 
uh, I still listen to a lot. I, I, I feel like one of the best things I can do is listen to as many things as I can just to get that, to that understanding and keep that opinion strong. Like to me, one of the things about mastering is, is, is having an opinion and being able to then go like, like I said, from point A to point B. Um, and every client is different. So I'm still learning something. One client, like I might be doing something for a jazz record and they want to really push it and make it loud. And I might be doing a rock record where they're going, can you make this kind of duller, warmer, rounder, dynamic, you know, you know, so eh, dealing with people and artists is always, uh, is always interesting to be able to, to, to work on the dialogue. It's an opportunity to be able to start to have a conversation with folks about how they try to understand how they're perceiving not only what they're trying to accomplish, but kind of who they are. And it's my job to try to understand how to help present them in their best way forward, not my sound, more of them, like their sound. And so I, I would say that's a constant learning experience. Um, I will say that it, it sort of more of a direct answer to your question is it probably took me, you know, it probably took me, I mean, I, I, I guess I would say like five or six or eight years, maybe like I was still, you know, but it, it to really go, okay, here, this, you know, like, all right, that, this is why, this is what, this is how, you know, it, um, even bringing a big backlog with me. So it, I guess I would say that's, uh, I mean, a, a engineering background. I, I guess I would say that that's why um, maybe one of the reasons I feel like mix engineers should not be mastering engineers is it really is an art form that is crafted over time and experience rather than a plug-in or, or something like that. It's, you know, it's a, there's an apprenticeship role that really happens. Paul Stubblebine became my, my mentor and somebody I, He's my partner in a label that I've got called the Tape Project. I went like this because all my tapes are on the shelf over there. But, you know, Paul is still a friend, and I still learn stuff from him. Super smart guy and very great listener. I learned a lot of listening skills from Paul, what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. And I think that that's something you don't stop learning. But I will say that it took me a lot of years to get past the sort of apprentice into the I got this role. You know, it's funny, though. I was just talking to actually a number of audio educators recently. And one of the things they told me was, and, and I could see this happening when I'm speaking to young engineers as well, especially ones that are working on hit projects, that the way recording and mixing and mastering is done these days, completely different than the way it was done in the past, where you're mixing as you go along, you're writing, you're mixing, and you're finishing I wouldn't call it mastering, but finishing at all at the same time. So what's expected by the newer artists is, okay, it's finished, ready to go. So yeah. that whole approach is way different. I would imagine you you must get some of that then to polish. There are, you know what, and, it, and it's a difficult conversation to have with folks sometimes because they, you know, there's the... I actually had this last night, uh, the Recording Academy chapter here. I'm a trustee. We had an event, and, and the event took place, and there was a uh, uh, at a venue, and so there was a sound man, and I was talking to him. And, and while we were talking about stuff, uh, uh, setting something up, he was playing some music, and I said, this is interesting. What is this? And he goes, oh, this is something I just mixed and mastered myself to be able to play back. He did the quote thing, and, and I get that from a lot of folks and say, well, I faux mastered, or I sort of mastered this, or I sort of did that. And, and we got into that discussion that, for the most part, that kind of processing really is, is finishing the mix. It's not mastering. And, and I'm a little 
I would say protective of the title of what mastering really is because I think it's something to be earned. It's a it's a perspective to have. And when when I guess I could get even more philosophical about this, but when, you know when people are just putting stuff on the master bus of a song and saying here it is and now it's done and, and here we go, that that's that's not that's finishing the mix. But the question is, is it really finishing it in the right way? If you're trying to, and, and more times than not, I think what they're what they're attempting to do is make the loudness of their mix comparable to something that their client is going to listen to and say, yes, this mix sounds good because it's close to this record that I already know. The unfortunate part about that is that's exactly backwards to me is that you know you have a reference point you're you're trying to look at a mix i can do this on video <laughs> yeah yeah all right you can do this on a you know you, you've got a mix that's here and, a, and something that they're comparing it to instead of trying to get this up to this the better way is to turn this down because when you're evaluating the mix you're listening for balance tonality placement instruments and how do they step on each other's toes sonically all those kinds of things when you do something to it for a volume sake you're not actually this isn't what the mix sounds like, so you're not actually having a good reference as to what the mix might be. You're having a supposition of what it might be if you did something to it, but that might not be the best thing to do to it. You know, in the overall, that might not be. That might be like, let's say somebody's trying to get, you know, uh, an extreme example. You've got a song and you want it to sound like a Metallica, like Death Magnetic or something. You're trying to get to this. What you do to it to get to that may not be the best thing for your song, and especially in these days when you're looking at uh, uh, streaming services and and us trying to actually really quiet things down a little bit. The last thing you want to do is do that. So I try to have a good conversation with my clients. Again, back to the dialogue. I think having that is a is a very huge uh, component of a successful record. Is to be able to say, what are you trying to do with this? What are you trying to get across? Where do you want to go with it? And a lot of times I can have them turn that down a little bit or bring the mix, pull things off the master bus, try to try to not make volume. I would never tell anybody not to do anything because it, for, I mean, if somebody's doing some, maybe a better way to say it, if, if people are processing things, let's just say on the master bus because they like the sound or it's doing what they want to do creatively, more power to them, cool. If they're trying to do it because they think they're trying to either present something to me that makes it easier for me or uh, it's, it's a, it makes the mix similar to something that they're familiar listening to, or whatever for whatever volume's sake, I, I'm kind of against that. I think that that's a, I think that's not necessary, and especially given high resolution audio where you've got a, a much lower noise floor, we don't need to be pumping everything up. As a matter of fact, the more we turn things down, the more we keep the material that's there instead of throwing it away in you know in the, in other ways, getting losing that information. So I try to have a good dialogue with folks and see you know what are they trying to accomplish and can we do this a different a different direction. Yeah, hopefully dynamic range will come back. And, and I know there's a, a trend to go that way, but not everybody, especially younger artists, can get their arms around that for some reason. One of the things that I always found interesting, if you go to a trade show or you go to a hi-fi show, whenever they play what they think is the best example, oh, this sounds great. Well, it's always the one that has the most dynamic range. It's like, well, if you think that sounds good, then why don't you make your records like that? I, I never could figure that out. You know, oh, let's squash it. <laughs> you know, I, I think that there's a, I, I think there's an inherent insecurity. Um, and I, I think that there, there might be, there's a, I mean, I, I could really get up on a whole bunch of soapboxes and maybe reasons why I think we got into, the, we, you know, we kind of got into this world. 
certainly there's the there's the historical aspect of recreating what FM broadcast is doing to songs and wanting to have you know have the LP sound like what the broadcast does. So let's put a compressor in the mastering chain to make you know we have we have all of those sort of historical ways to get there. But I but I think that that when we got into got away from cassette four tracks for the average home musician and the ADAT and the Mackie came out and people were able to start doing recordings and making good sounding recordings, the technology opened up to where you didn't have to be in that walled garden of uh, uh, signed by a label to get into a studio or huge funds to go into a studio and make a, make a record. It, it, it became easier for other folks. But the consumers on the backside, people who are listening to music, they have no idea how, how a record was recorded. You know, they, they don't want to know how the sausage was made, but they, uh, on, on top of that, but they, they also, um, they, they also are looking at, uh, uh, it's a comparative world. They don't know that you spent five bucks and a cassette or an ADAT tape to make an eight track thing that sounded really good. And Peter Gabriel went off and spent a million dollars in two years to make this record. All they know is that they're side by side at tower records in the bin and to be considered competitive, which is an awful word in an artistic field, to be competitive, they had to be at least as loud. So to me, that we kind of got down that path of how do you compete when you can't do it on, on other levels? One thing you can do is to do that. And they got people sort of slowly creeping up. And it, it got to be the impressiveness of the immediate satisfaction of something being loud and in your face, but realizing that the dynamic range is what drew you in and keeps you there rather than bullhorns you and shouts and pulls you back. And now you turn the volume down on your stereo because it's fatiguing to you. Now that it's fatiguing to you, now it's, you turn it down, it's now background music. Now that it's background music, people aren't listening to albums, they're listening to singles. So now the single has to be more impressive. So people are, you know, so then it got into this war of just pushing and pushing. And I, I would love, I'm with you. I'd love to see us get back into dynamics. I'd like to, I'd like to actually use the knob on my stereo for playback to turn it up past 10%. I'd like to actually turn <laughs> it up and use the and get past the harmonic noise of my amp and get into this, you know, the 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 sweet spot of of its headroom. Like we do that with analog consoles, I want to do that with my stereo. Yeah, 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 <laughs> or, yeah. or what I'm listening to. So, yeah. <laughs> what I'm finding is there's a lot of confusion about levels. Yeah. And especially since now there are some monitoring software plugins that have come out that allow you to listen to what it's going to sound like on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever the case. For some reason, there are some mixers that think, I have to mix to that now. I have to deliver minus 12, minus 14, minus 16. Do you see that happening? I'm talking about Luffs, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I, I do see what there are some folks that will come in to me that I, that I have had some clients that will, that will um, unfortunately, rely on the numbers more so than the sound. And so they're worried about delivery of something that has to deal with numbers specifically rather than just let me do my job and you tell me where it's going and I'll and, you know I can adjust I can I can uh, deal with the headroom as much as I need to leave as leave as little cuz you're going to do a you know and here's the other thing is is if you're going to put it on Spotify you know you for example any one of the streaming services what works best with them is more along the lines of a, of a vinyl master than a CD master. You don't just take it, squash it, make a CD type master, a one master type thing, and then just turn that down 
and then send that out. It's not, it's not the same thing. It doesn't give you that same sense when you listen. There really should be a different master for the different types of releases. But I see folks that are relying on the numbers as a, you know, sort of a holy grail. It needs to be these numbers. And, you know, I, uh, I applaud the fact that they're paying attention. I think that's fantastic. But it's really what do they do to get to those numbers, not just necessarily what are they and, and the fact that they're down a little bit from zero or they're, you know, this many luffs. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you saw that Amazon Music launched their high-res tier yesterday. How do you think that's going to affect what you do? I've been working with high-res audio for a very long time, and I have always encouraged folks to be to at least be working, you know, as far as making records in that. Uh, and I, I will say that it's it's more rare these days that I get a 44 anything file. Um, it's it's generally at least 48 or uh, uh, most of the work I do is at around 96. And then there's the it's definitely the bell curve. There's up at 192 for some folks, and there's the occasional DSD. But for the most part, um, I would say that people are working in high resolution, and I think that, that affords them an ability. Uh, I think, look, you always want to put your best foot forward, and 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 anything you can do to pull the listener in to actually pay attention to what you're saying or what you're playing or whatever you, whatever emotion or story you're trying to get across, the better. And I think high resolution has a plays a huge part in that. Um, however, I would also, you know, try to caution folks on because, like, one of the greatest benefits of high resolution audio is not, you know, or misnomers anyways. People think that it's more re there's more information in there. Well, in a sense, there's more information in there. But the biggest, to me, gain is the lowering of the noise floor, mm, yeah. which means with the noise floor being lower, now I can hear into it more because the very low level resolution ambient cues you know, or overtones of instruments, things that we can now keep that help define the, the, the soundscape, whether it's something very natural or something manufactured, we can keep that information at its lowest level and have the best sort of insight into it because it's now above the noise floor. Maybe very low level resolution, but it's something that is now up in the sonic where we can hear it's not masked by something else. So, uh, you know, Amazon doing that and, and people uh, accepting high res. I've been an HD tracks fan for a long time or Blue Coast Audio. Or there's a lot of you know a lot of places that are dealing with high res audio, and I and I applaud them for sticking with it and being able to do that. To see somebody like Amazon take that on, you know, even more so, fantastic. I'd love to see Apple do it. I'm shocked they haven't. Yeah, <laughs> we've been delivering 2496 files to Apple for a long time. Yeah. My my thought is that they're just stockpiling them until they can handle the bandwidth to deal with you know as a, their servers and all. I think that's fantastic that they do it, and and I I hope that it helps musicians realize what they gain from that. Not just bragging rights that it's high res, but actually utilizing those those samples and those bits to help give them more of themselves within the art. See, I feel with something like HDTV, where when that came out, there were a lot of consumers that said, "Why do I need that? I'm happy with what I have." Until they saw it. And then it was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can't go back now. And I'm sort of thinking that's going to happen as well when someone is exposed to high-res, high-res audio in a good playback environment, even if it's headphones, and go, oh, yeah, okay, now I get it. Now, now nothing else sounds as good to me. I mean, the, the downside, of course, is the bandwidth. So you, you have yeah. to have a plan, yeah. a data plan that will work. So that's a downside. 
Well, you know, and then you can do something like Amazon, for example, download it when you're near on a Wi-Fi network and then cache it, you know, so you've got it on your device if you're walking around so you don't have to deal with the charges of the, you know, cellular or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, Neil Young was, you know, I, I thought that was uh, his attempt at the Pono was a great idea. Uh, you know, it wasn't anything revolutionary. It was just he was he was really trying to be an advocate from a music side saying, look, high resolution audio matters and this is why. And there aren't enough options. So, by the way, also here's this little, you know, here's this little box that'll do it. And that, and I thought that was fantastic. You know, Sony has their high res players, and lots of folks have that. You know, Stellan Kern, and you know, all these high res players to uh, to be able to, to to get that stuff out there. But I'm with you. I find that I find that when you can demonstrate to people the differences, what that is, we've done a great job. It's something you mentioned. We've done a great job as an industry. Well, let me re- rephrase that. The the um, the video industry has done a great job educating the people who buy their products about what plasma versus LED versus nits versus refresh rate and frame and all, you know all, they've they've educated people about all of that. We we stop that. We're not doing that in the audio world, and I think we could be better about that to really let people know if you are a fan of music, it, it takes a couple of things. It takes a conscious effort on the creation, and it takes a conscious effort on the enjoyment of it. But I think we can do both. We're pushing really hard on trying to advance the capabilities of being able to get high-res audio and try to do so in a, in a very musical-pleasing way. We also have to work hard to let the consumers know that, you know, and demonstrate to them what the differences are. You can talk about, you know, this great restaurant all day long until you go and sit down. You have a bite and you go, well, crap, this is why this is really good because yeah. it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Speaking of advancements in audio, let's talk about immersive audio because you just finished the Kenny Wayne Shepherd project yeah. in immersive. I've heard it multiple times and I see it as the future of audio, depending on some variables, but I think maybe we can get past those. But tell me about your experience. And I realize you made the jump into it. It's a commitment, especially on a mastering side, to go and jump into it like that. Well, I, I started doing, uh, I um, actually, when Paul and I had another room together, Stubblevine, after, long after the rocket days uh, came, you know, we, we moved on and all of that. We, uh, I went to the plant and worked there for, I started the mastering room at the plant and did that for a couple of years. And then I recombined with, or I reconnected with Paul and we set up, we got into the old Coast Recorders building. And when we did consciously, we set up two 5.1 mastering rooms. So we started doing that in, in 2001. And I've been... I've been involved in 5.1, you know, since then and working on projects and and uh, have always been a fan of what the pulling apart. Eh, no, that's not a wait. That's not a good way to say it because I have a I have a theory I'd like to share or something. I, I'll say an observation I will share with you in a minute. But the um, the idea of the engagement, uh, I think of music as something that should be actively listened to, not passively listened to. And, it, uh, you know, there are its times and places, but the. But the activeness of it, what you can do to present to somebody in a more than mono or more than stereo field, when you get that whole plane involved, the creative aspects of what you can do with that are amazing. You can really engage people to start listening to things the way that we walk around this world and the way that we listen to things in our normal lives. You go to a show, any live show, it's immersive. There's a ceiling. Sounds bouncing off of it. There's somebody behind you. There's somebody talking. There's a bar. There's a bathroom. There's whatever it is. Like you have all of these sounds that are that are brought into it. Now you probably don't want to capture all those for a for a record, but that would be interesting too. Um, 
so getting into immersive was uh, getting into the hype channel aspect of it for me was a uh, was a, a logical step, and it's something I really enjoy. I, I really want to encourage people. The uh, I try to do as many listening sessions as I can. I try to do as many experiential things to try to turn people onto it, especially people making records, so that they're thinking creatively ahead for the next thing that they're going to be making. And when they're working on their next record, to think about well, what if the piano is over here? Or what if the tambourine was not, you know, over, but it was up above you? Or what if, you know, what if, what if? Like, what are the possibilities? And uh, I, I think that opens up a huge world of expression to get people engaged in listening. Your, your question or your thought about the, you know, how are people going to be listening to it and all that certainly plays into, you know, what can you do and where is this going to go? And, you know, this is, this is essentially sort of third time around in the, in the surround world, the original quad in the 70s. And, you know, then we had the DVD, SACD wars of, you know, the 90s and, and then or, or early 2000s. And then um, now and, and the car was actually supposed to be the savior of playback for immersive audio or for, for surround sound, which I thought was really, you know, interesting because nobody's in a good spot. Yeah. Road noise, wind noise, like all of, you're cutting down all of the benefits of it. But when it started to become actually practical and, and it looked like people were actually engaging in this in uh, and maybe it was maybe it was the home theater movement. People started putting home theaters in and putting in sound systems that would could handle it. Maybe it was the gaming in the in the same kind of way, the gaming world where people were doing surround and in and, and sort of in that side of the world, that more people had some access to listening to it. And the more people had access to listening to it, the experiential side of it, the more they were like, Well, this is interesting. I want to get involved. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm very hopeful that this time around I, I like it and love it as much about what it does is that I really feel like so immersive and uh, in all its forms from binaural to Atmos to everything else is the new stereo and we should be checking our mixes on mono I mean on stereo like we check stereo mixes on mono now um, I have an experience for you I'll share about the uh, fold down stuff maybe we can talk about that in a minute i don't know if that's on your question sure, but, sure. But, but that's a that's a big issue and i and i and i think that there's there's some there's some inherent problems there we haven't solved yet but but getting people into that that ability to be able to hear that and experience it and then those aha moments of creativity um i'm just a, for one i'm a fan so i want to help encourage people to be creative and that active listening so that's that that's propelled my path speaking of fold down I've spoken to a number of, of mixers that are actively doing this that said, oh, I didn't have a problem. I thought it did it pretty well. Did you have a different experience? Yeah. I, I, uh, if I can be blunt, fold down sucks. <laughs> like it doesn't, it, well, he, okay. So here's, <laughs> so let me, I guess some fold down isn't as bad as others. Taking a seven, one, four, making a five, one out of it, um, can be done fairly easily and effectively and all it's the creating of the stereo mix to me, that is the problem. And I'll, I will relay to back to the mono, uh, mono conversation. Um, I, I, uh, when Jeff, when, um, um, when and Giles M Martin redid Sergeant Pepper question on everybody's mind, which one's better? Which one do you like? Which one like, what is it? Everybody's like, well, the new one is this and the old one is that. So I said, let's do it. Let's do a listing event. So we had an AES local chapter AES event here where we brought in every version of Sgt. Pepper we could find. Original mono, stereo, LP, CD, remastered, remixed, surround. We did the whole thing and we spent an entire day listening to every single version. And I'll go back to my favorite of all of those was the original mono version. 
and I actually had a good, uh, several good conversations with Jeff Emmerich about this. Um, the uh, one of the things that impresses me most about why that that mono version does it for me is the craft of engineering and the care it took to get all of those instruments to come out. I can do this on the video for you. Come out of one speaker like this and not stepping on each other's toes, not creating sonic bulbous anomalies or weird things. Everything has its place and fits in nicely and you can hear it and it works. In that world, like that's a craft. That's a to be able to to be able to get that to fit in there like that. When we move to stereo, we have a little bit wiggle a little bit more wiggle room to be able to try to expand out. We don't necessarily have to pay attention to, you know, uh, other than an LP master and out of phase low frequency and blah blah blah. But that kind of stuff. But, you know, we don't have to necessarily make sure that that guitar on the right hand side and that guitar on the left hand side aren't sonically stepping on each other's toes. They're coming out of different speakers. And so you're giving space and time a little variance into being able to, you know, sort of separate the two without making it feel clouded or muddy. Get into a surround aspect and then even add the height speakers, you've got so much more opportunity that you have to occupy that space. So the sounds become bigger or become more expansive or maybe have more ambient sounds like delays or reverbs or things to fill in that space. So this guitar is happening here. It's reverb is happening back here. There's, you know, we're up here to down, you know, and this, all of this, you have all of these capabilities. That's great. And I love the aspect about that. What I've bumped my head into every single time is trying to do a fold down. This big sphere doesn't fold down into this dot. It just doesn't, you can't cram all of that into one space and think that a fold down is going to make that a good mix. And if I'm thinking about like, I'm, there's a, there's a record I'm just finishing up right now, a band called the devil in California. And I, and I'm recording, producing, mixing, um, great guys, great band. We, we started this with it as an experiment to look at doing this as an immersive record first do a seven, one, four and say, here's what this is now let's, you know, and then everything is built around this and then we'll just derive the other the fold downs down to end it up on a you know multi-format blu-ray for example i followed along that path and by the time i got to the stereo fold down of it i realized that I, you know i had made a, a tactical error in that i should have started with the stereo first i really 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 wanted to make sure that the immersive was the focal point this is what we were doing let's push the boundaries let's make this big let's do this whole thing and i got to the stereo part of it and it just it didn't work. I had to stop and I had to, I actually, we pulled the release date. I had to remix the stereo version of it and start all over again because it, it all those things didn't fit into these two channels. It, it just, they stepped on each other's toes. It got muddy. It got weird. You know, it's funny you should mention that because again, the engineers I have talked to about it have said, oh, hardly use any EQ, hardly use any compression. Don't need to because everything is spread out and you can hear it. And that was my thought exactly. Well, when it folds down, there's a big problem there because all the things that you'd normally do in stereo or, you know, going way back in mono was try to separate everything through the use of processing. So if you're not right. using that, how does it work when it actually folds down? So I think you're right. It was like, well, why don't you just do the stereo first? In the case of the engineers I, would talk, I was talking to, the stereo already exists because they were doing legacy product. Yes. I have a, um, a, a yellow flag about that. I mean, I can say that there's a caution indicator in, for me for that. I'm a little concerned about the, the sort of rush to glut the market with legacy immersive audio 
for the sake of having a glut of immersive audio available for people, it's a chicken and egg. They're not going to buy into it unless they have the content. But if they don't have the, but if you don't have the content, then you know people are going to buy into it. So does it make sense to actually do it? I'm I'm concerned about um, people putting a lot of stuff out there, doing sort of half like just because you can pull it apart, doesn't mean it actually sounds good pulled apart. But they also what they have to consider is that when people are listening, they may have their stereo set or their playback system to listen to that in some, you know, in, in a default fold down mode within the device itself and folding down that multi-channel mix to be able to try to create a stereo mix out of it for, for playback if it's in a different situation. And if they're not paying attention, just like in stereo world, we have to make sure that we, we, we're looking at mono compatibility still works. You know, we, that's still a thing that we have to pay attention to. I think that they need to be making sure that what they're doing on this pullout of stuff to be able to create these immersive from this legacy stuff is still very much pay attention to how it folds down. If they're not changing things too much, if they're pulling, it, it's just, like I said, it's not quite a red flag. It's just something to be paying attention to. I, 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 I believe strongly enough in this format, I want to make sure it has its best shot. And I think a whole lot of not great records out there that people might listen to could possibly muddy the waters and, you know, and make people go, eh, I heard it. It's not that great. I want it to be super impressive, you know, but you also have to think about how people are going to be listening and pay, pay attention to what potential scenarios there are for, you know, uh, screw ups on the consumer side and, you know, what those ramifications might be. Do you know about the upcoming universal Dolby streaming project? I do, but mostly, yeah, I do some work for Dolby. I do testing and, and stuff, listening, and yeah. I've been told that there's a lot of consumer electronic manufacturers that are signed on to this. And what they told me down at Capital is every other day they have another one coming in and testing their stuff. And a lot of them going back to the drawing board. The whole idea being, I'm sure you know this already, Bluetooth, get rid of the cabling and a lot of upfiring. So the supposedly the placement isn't as critical as it was before. And yeah. that will be the answer to the problems that we have with 5.1 in the home. Yeah. Yet to be seen. Yeah. And then there's sound bars that, that are also bouncing things off the ceiling and off the back and trying to create, you know, the question is, what are you feeding it? And what are the algorithms that are getting there? And what's, you know, how is it getting to these? What is Bluetooth doing to the audio? You know, what is, yeah. what's happening in the packetization? Are there timing errors to get to that speaker, to this speaker? And are you causing other sorts of problems? So, you know, I just want to make sure that they're paying attention to all those, you know, the potential breakdowns. But again, we're then we're relying on the consumer, you know, the ease of use. Uh, but it has to be right for yeah. people to get it. Yeah. So I'm glad they're doing a lot of testing. You know, it's funny. I have not talked to many mixers that are having their immersive products mastered. And the general feeling was it doesn't need it. So the fact that you're mastering immersive product is interesting to me. And I'm curious whether the tools exist for you to do this. <laughs> excellent. It's, you know, two excellent topics or excellent questions. If you go back to the fundamental nature of what mastering is, I feel it's hugely important that immersive gets mastered. If we fall into the mindset that it just sort of is what it is and well, I'm just pulling it apart and it's, you know, it just, it just feels good. Here's, here's this, like, here's a mix. Like you went back to a single, like, here's a song. It's done. Somebody goes, great. Oh, I just did this at home and I'm going to put this up on, you know, 
whatever service it is tonight, now it's released and it's out there. Is that the best form of it? Does it, you know, the translatability, you know, we, we have to think about all of the things that mastering brings into like what really is mastering versus what, fin- what is just finishing the mix. And I think thinking about that, any particular project as a body of work rather than a collection of songs. You know, how do you create, how does this body work? You may do these songs and they may do their thing, but how does that necessarily present itself? You know, in the mastering world, you know, looking at dynamics and EQ and levels and continuity and pacing and uh, beyond the artistic side, then there's also the delivery side. I, I think that mastering is still completely, uh, it's, it, there, it's, a, it's an art form that needs to be there no matter what the, what the channel count is. I, I think if we start to get fall into that to go, well, it doesn't need to be mastered, you know, w- would that be, I mean, w- would you say that to a video world that says, well, I'm making movies at home, my iPhone is a good camera, or I've got this, bought this red, or I've got DaVinci, or I can do, you know, I can, I can do all this myself, you know, but do we need color correction? Do we need, you know, gain matching of the brightness of the channels? Do we need, you know, in, in a different world? Because just because somebody can do a lot of that at home doesn't mean that having a second opinion or having expert ears or experience to be able to listen and go, you know what, I'm hearing some problems in this. We may want to address this or here's how I can do this. It's not about necessarily sweetening things. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It's the it's knowing when something needs to be done and, and not and when something does need to be done, knowing what needs to be done and then how to make it happen. So, uh, you know, I feel like I feel like mastering for immersive is is still really important. I, I I'm not sure that I would, you know, I, I wouldn't release something that doesn't have somebody else's ears on it or some, you know, somebody that has the knowledge of this is what the manufacturer is going to need to get this out there properly to the world. And that this sounds like a body of work, not just a collection of songs. See, I think there's another situation or another requirement, actually, and you touched on it. One of the things that is overlooked in what a mastering engineer does, and especially these days when we're talking more singles than albums, but you know yourself, it's the consistency between songs that really makes a big difference on an album because you wouldn't want them to sound way different or have different levels. You want that consistency. So there's a reason right there yeah. to have mastering. You know, and one of the things about this, and, and I don't know that people talk about this too much, is but, you know, what, one of the reasons, I mean, if we think about this, our ears are designed, developed, evolved. However, what we hear, ear, what we hear is more related to change than it is to constant. And when things change, it grabs our attention. Like we don't hear the air conditioner in the back of the room after a while because we've tuned it out. It's constant. You know, you get, you get around things like that. But, but when things do change, our attention goes from not what is it, but there it is. You know, um, I don't know how to, how to say it this way. The, uh, you get pulled out of the sort of... Um, fantasy world of the song and into the mechanics of what is happening. It's like a behind the scenes of making a movie. You watch enough of them and you see, you start to recognize signs of green screen, you know, in game of Thrones or whatever it is. And then you watch it and then you start looking for it. You're not paying attention to the story or the emotion of the actors or anything that's going on. You're thinking about the background, like how do they draw this and what's going on here? What's going on there? Music should be to me is something that pulls you that, completely pulls you into an experience or an emotion or a presentation of something 
And when you start to hear the differences of things, you're not paying attention to the content, you're paying attention to the differences. And when you're listening to a body of work and one song is a little louder, one's a little quieter, one's a little brighter, and one's a little this, and drums are far back on this one and vocals are way out on this one, you're listening to the differences between the songs, not what actually the message is being portrayed or the art that they're trying to get across. And I think that's no matter what you're listening to, you know, the, the more that you can take the you can take away all of the distractions from the listener to get them to pay attention to actually what's going on in what they bought or what they're listening to rather than how that got made. Excellent point. Well, yes, about tools too. I also was going to say there that the, the tools are, are coming. There are some, you know, depending on like we have stereo tools, it, it, it's, I'm an analog guy. All of my mastering is done in the analog realm, except for immersive. I just don't, you know, to have 12 channels of this Massenberg compressor, for example, I, I can't, you know, you just can't do it. Yeah. I, it's just not, it's not feasible and, and uh, to be able to do so. So I, I have to do that in the box. The question is, are the tools available in the box? And for the most part, not really yet. There are some that are there that can handle, like, let's say you wanted to put an EQ across a 714 mix. Not many things can handle that. You have to find other ways to be able to affect what, excuse me, affect what you need to affect. Is it, is it the front versus the rear? Is it the top versus the bottom? However you group things, start to process them a little bit differently. You also have to think about the phase relationships of that processing. Even if you're thinking about dynamics in any kind of way, if you've got the front left and right or front left, right and center doing you know, something strong, you don't want it to trigger and pull down the back half of the room because a kick drum hits up here. So there's, there are, there are techniques and, and tricks or, uh, you know, or good engineering, I suppose, ways to be able to try to tie all these things together, make them still phase coherent and be able to, uh, to be able to apply them as you need to for the different channels. Um, there may be, for example, ceiling speakers may on one project may have just complete ambience and another project may have drums, you know, so you've got to be able to handle all of that kind of stuff. The, the tools, the, the digital tools are coming. Uh, they're sort of on there. I, I know folks who are developing them along the way. We only have a few now and we'll have more soon. And, and uh, um, you know, maybe some of these, uh, some of the workstations are working really hard to be able to have that. I'm a, I'm a Steinberg user. I, I like Nuendo. That's what I use. And they've got a lot of, lot of great tools that have come along uh, that I think are, are really capable and, and handy. You know, that augmented with other things that I would do to something um, uh, help me get through. But the workflow aspect of it, you say about the tools, and I, I'll stop after the workflow. We're still really working on, you know, we've got it figured out how to make a stereo, how to make a mix. You, you, you get it down. Uh, uh, you, you put it on something, you burn a disc, you make a file, you do, you know, whatever it is, you can get things out to people to listen to mixes, to listen to references, to audition them in different places. That translatability is still a huge thing. How do you play this in one system and then go to another? And, and are you still hearing those in an immersive world? So we still have to pay attention to, to uh, overall balance and translatability is still a primary, you know, primary function. And again, for like I said, so you take people out of the creation of it and get them into the art form of it. But one of the biggest bottlenecks we have is how do you get a reference or how do you make these parts? Because there's still six steps now where there needs to be one or two. But how do you get a reference to a client to get excited about or to approve the mixes? That's still something we're wrestling with because it's not easy. Like Kenny, for example, you mentioned the Kenny Wayne Shepherd record. It was awesome to work on that. Kenny is a super nice guy, plays from the heart. I thought it was really great. 
uh, E.T., Eric Dorngren, we worked on that together as far as the mix goes. Um, he's a hoot and so fun to work with. Um, but we couldn't get mixes to Kenny. Thankfully, he was in L.A. He was able to fly up here and spend a day listening to the mixes to make sure he approved them. Because we had a hard time getting something down to him, even a fold down, even sending a 5-1 as a ref was hard. You know, we're going to get into maybe the binaural world where we're sending mixes as a binaural mix. Is that going to be the same thing as listening to speakers? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Depends on some of the algorithms and all. But, you know, getting those things to people to be able to approve and listen and understand how their music is being presented is still part of the workflow challenges we have at the moment. Last question, Michael. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Off the top of my head, the first thing I think about is always put your best foot forward. Nobody, like, again, sort of back to the comment of when somebody buys a record and they see your name on it. Your reputation and your name and your work is what people know. Everything you put out that has your name on it is part of your body of work and your, rep your, your representation of yourself and your skill set out in the world. Somebody buying a record has no idea that you spent you know, somebody came to you and says, uh, said, you know, I want to make this thing. I've only got three hours to get this album recorded and mixed and out, you know, and you had, you know, $50 and this SM7, uh, 57 or whatever to do it. You know, you got it because you, you wouldn't get an SM7 for 50 bucks. Yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah, <laughs> but, but you know, you're, you're uh, nobody, all they know is it's either good or not. They either like it or they don't. And your name is on it. And your name is part of your, your credits. It's your personality. It's your, it's your resume. And so always do the best you can. Don't just half-ass something to get out there because you're only getting paid 10 bucks an hour or whatever it happens to be. You always have to put your best foot forward because they can't take that away from you. That's your reputation. So make it count. You can find out more about Michael and Coast Mastering at coastmastering.com. Dot com. That's Coastmastering, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.